This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Hey there, I'm Casey Finey, host of Creative Control, and we're actually in production for season two of the podcast. So while we're hard at work bringing you more of the people and trends shaping the creator economy, please enjoy this throwback episode. The creative process is full of peaks and valleys, right? You have your moments where things are effortlessly flowing, and you have moments where you are just riding shotgun on the struggle bus. But there are ways to turn the worst moments of the creative process into something useful. Check out this mashup of episodes on how uncertainty can make us more creative and how you can channel your negative emotions into something positive. I'm your host, KC Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. When we were going into production for season three of Creative Conversation, I did a call out for some of the most challenging creative problems you all are facing in your jobs. And this one really stood out to me. It's from Christina, aka Divine Techie Girl on Twitter, which is a great name, by the way. Christina said, What is interesting to me is how the term innovation is used religiously while still wanting to keep things the same. And she went on to say that the old guards need to trust the new generation with new ideas. To me, that issue comes down to creative uncertainty. That do I or don't I feeling when you attempt to step outside your comfort zone in search of truly creative solutions. One of the hesitations may come from really not being clear what we mean by creativity. To get at the root of the problem, I spoke with Dr. Ron Baghetto, a renowned expert on creativity and the author of Beautiful Risks. So I think once people realize that when we're talking about creativity, it's not we're not talking about unconstrained originality. We're actually talking about constrained originality, and it's constrained by the particular situation, the particular problem, the particular context in which we find ourselves. And I think that can provide some reassurance of, okay, we're not just throwing everything out the window and just blindly trying new things um, because there can be kind of unintended and sometimes even dangerous consequences of doing so. But rather, we're trying to do things in a new way, but that's also meaningful. I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, Could you dig a bit deeper into the misconceptions around creativity? That's a very important question. I mean, the thing about creativity, it's, it's a concept that everyone already has a pretty well-formed opinion about, I would say, and maybe thinks about in relation to their own lives. And so I think we oftentimes, and I think this includes creativity researchers too, we sometimes have a more narrow conception of creativity than um, it may actually be the case. And so we oftentimes will think about, you know, well, creativity is only um, in one domain, the arts, or some people are creative and other people are not. So these kind of more fixed views or limited views. I think what could be really helpful is recognizing that creativity really is a distinction or judgment we make usually after the fact. So we use the criteria of is this original and is it meaningful to make judgments about ideas, behaviors, products, and again, after the fact, because we can't know that in advance. So if we recognize that creativity really is a judgment or or decision or determination, that can then help us break free from the idea that, well, some people possess creativity and some don't, or creativity can only occur in some domains or activities and not others. You know, creativity research would say, you know, it's also 
kind of conditioned by or contextualized by the particular social, cultural, historical context. So what could be determined as creative in a fourth grade classroom may not be in, you know, in a business or in the boardroom, but it still could be considered creative in that particular context. So thinking about creativity um, as being situational and contextual can be helpful. And again, that is a judgment. So how does that idea of expanding the definition of creativity and putting it into the right context play into creative uncertainty? With uncertainty, I think we have this relationship where if we feel uncertainty, we might fear that other people might see us as incompetent. So if you're a leader or an educator or a parent and you don't know what to do next in a situation and somebody's turning towards you and wondering where you know this meeting's headed or where this lessons headed or, or where the next step is going to be and we don't know, that we fear that incompetence. So I think that negative association that we sometimes have with uncertainty can impede us from seeing the creative opportunities that uncertainty presents. And so I think that's kind of a way that we narrowly think about uncertainty and we therefore lose opportunities to actually do things in new and sometimes better ways. Um, so I think those coupled together kind of a narrow conception of creativity, recognizing that really is just a judgment that we make based on the criteria of the definition, and that uncertainty can actually be really generative and actually a sign of competence by recognizing that, hey, this is different. This isn't working the way I anticipated it to. Let's stop the meeting for a moment instead of going to the next agenda item and explore this, or let me put down the lesson plan and let's explore this, where this is headed in a different direction. So what are some ways people can engage with uncertainty in more productive ways? Because I feel like we're often told to do the thing that scares us the most and to step outside of the box. But how can we effectively navigate the uncertainty that comes with that? Yeah, that's a great question. I I firmly believe that uncertainty really is the kind of key lever uh, of creativity. In fact, I would say it's like the condition and catalyst for creativity. And so I think what this requires is rethinking our kind of relationship with uncertainty. And now that we kind of have an understanding of what creativity is, it's not just unconstrained originality, but it's, it's doing something new or thinking in new ways that kind of meaningfully resolve uncertainty. That's one way to kind of define creativity. And so if we think about uncertainty, uncertainty presents us with these opportunities to think and act in new ways. Um, And it's really the sign of when we should think creatively. We don't always have to be creative. Oftentimes, we can follow well-established routines and procedures, and that's the most efficient, effective, and sensible thing to do. It's when we run into an impasse um, and we don't know what to do, or things that have worked in the past are no longer working, or we want to kind of improve, you know, whatever we're doing, then we're kind of experiencing or introducing uncertainty into that space. And that's when it's time actually to think and act in new ways. So that's where it's kind of a condition for creativity. And I think the other thing that could be reassuring is to recognize that as humans, we all have creative potential. We all have the ability to think and act in new ways. It's kind of our survival imperative, if you will. And so the fact that we make it through each day likely means that we've experienced some uncertainties and we're able to resolve them. I think it's when we experience what the great American pragmatist Charles Sanders Peirce described as a state of genuine doubt, where you're really stopped in your tracks, that it can be kind of terrifying, where you really don't know what to do, 
And that is, I think, when we most need to be creative. So I think part of what it is, is, is being more aware of when we are encountering uncertainty. I often think it's also helpful to distinguish between good and bad uncertainty. So to you, what's the difference between good uncertainty and bad uncertainty? It might be easier to understand this if we think about if we're inviting people into uncertainty. You know, we can encounter uncertainty, we just, we experience it, or we can kind of induce it. And sometimes when we're designing experiences where we're actually asking people to come up with new ways of thinking or acting or develop a new product or whatever the case may be, we're actually inviting uncertainty in. And so in those cases, what we want to make sure of is that people know how they can get assistance um, when they need it and be encouraged to do so. They can also know what some of the general criteria are, like we only have five weeks to do this. This is our budget. We can't go over this budget. So specifying some of the structure around that, the constraints, and so we're kind of structuring the uncertainty a bit. And so if we're able to, you know, if we're kind of creating that situation, then we can structure the uncertainty for others. If we find ourselves encountering uncertainty, then we have to kind of structure it ourselves, you know, be willing to ask for help when we need it. So again, there's fear in doing that because some people, and sometimes we all fear, like if we ask for help, then people will think we're incompetent. When again, that's actually a sign of competence, of recognizing your limitations. So I think being willing to ask for help, being willing to clarify, okay, do we have any criteria? What, what are the constraints that we're operating in? And I think by doing that, you can clear away the bad uncertainty. Because if you don't know those things, then it's just chaotic. You, you really are kind of immobilized. If you, you know, it feels like the criteria keep changing, you can't ask for assistance, and you're just stuck. So then once you clear that up, when you kind of structure the uncertainty a bit, then the good uncertainty is simply being okay with the fact that you don't know how this is going to turn out or what it's going to look like, or even if it'll work, but being willing to take the risk to try new things, to test them out, to pivot, do whatever you need to do, and then ultimately evaluate um, whatever you produce at the end and determine whether you know, it meaningfully solves the problem or not, or you know, resolves the uncertainty. It's easy to assume that the best way to get over creative hesitation is to fail fast. Just make those mistakes early on to get to the right solution quicker. But is there a better way to think about failure? Here's Dr. Pagetto. There is some benefit in those kinds of slogans like fail fast, fail forward, learn from your mistakes, in that it, it can kind of provide a nudge for us to maybe take risks that we otherwise might not take. I think the danger um, that comes with those slogans is they're, they end up being pretty hollow or empty when you actually experience failure, uh, because what they fail to describe is the pain or the emotion or the frustration that comes with failure and making mistakes. And I think this is particularly important when we're talking about people that are earlier in their careers or young people that are trying to take kind of meaningful risks and try to do things new. Um, and then they hit a setback and it could be, you know, a pretty devastating experience. So what I would argue and what I've tried to work on is trying to help people kind of tell their stories of failure. So I've developed this very simple activity that I call my favorite failure. Um, and it's just a series of a couple questions that invites people to share examples of when they tried to do something um, new and they failed to describe what happened and importantly, what they felt during that 
um, experience, and then what they learned about the situation, what they learned about themselves, and why it's their favorite. And so I think by kind of, you know, paradoxically combining favorite with failure, but importantly, adding that kind of emotional component to it, it can really help people understand that failure does sometimes lead to success. And, you know, we need to be willing to step forward and make mistakes and fail and kind of move forward from those, but also be realistic about how painful um, that can be and why oftentimes it, it results in us being somewhat hesitant um, in being willing to do so. So I would add the caveat of, yes, fail forward, but let's be realistic about how difficult and unpleasant failure can often be if we're really trying to use those slogans to motivate people. So if somebody is suffering from creative mortification, how would you suggest they process that? How do you get to the point of accepting your failure in order to make it your favorite failure? When we're talking about creative mortification, Oftentimes, it seems that that comes from a combination of really experiencing some deep shame around what happened and also the belief that you can't improve. And so that's a pretty, that's a double whammy, and it's, and it's pretty difficult to kind of bounce back from that. But it seems that people that can move forward from even painful and embarrassing um, setbacks recognize at some fundamental level that they can improve. That's a really important thing to recognize. And, and for people that are trying to support others, so if you're in a leadership position or if you're an educator or a parent um, and you're trying to help people kind of move beyond that setback, I think it's critically important to be honest about where their limitations are and at the same time, show them how they can start making steps towards improvement. And so that really can send the message of, look, you know, you're not there yet, um, and it didn't work out this time, but here's how you might move in that direction. And then for those of us that have kind of experienced those kinds of things, I think being honest about our goals and maybe recalibrating our goals. So maybe I'm not going to be the next John Keats as a poet. And so why don't I scale that back a little bit and just see if I can maybe present my poems in some sort of other venue or get them published in a magazine, maybe seek out the assistance that I actually need um, to take that next step. So I think the key there is, again, recognizing there's an emotional component to it, but also thinking about, okay, how can we improve? And sometimes that improvement requires a recalibration of what our aspirations are without letting them go completely. Because I think that's the danger of creative mortification is your creative aspiration is suspended kind of indefinitely. And so you lose out on the kind of joy and experience of producing creative work, and you also kind of give up the responsibility that you have to share that with others, you know, the potential contribution you can make. Those would be a couple ideas there is, is helping people start identifying very concrete ways how they can make improvement, and then also maybe think about recalibrating one's aspirations to kind of meet where you actually are. I want to go back to the Twitter question we got from Christina that kicked off this whole conversation around creative uncertainty. It sounded like she was in the position of trying to convince a colleague or a boss to mean what they say when they talk about innovation or disruption and to trust a new generation with new ideas. When you're in a position where you're ready to take those creative risks, but the people around you aren't, how do you convince them to do so? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I think it's, it's not just the old guard. I think it's most of us actually don't like uncertainty. 
and risk. I mean, I think we tend to be risk adverse. So I think what can be helpful in helping other people understand the creative work that you're doing or the new ways you're thinking about something or or the new ways you're kind of providing a, a procedure or something to solve problems in a different way is to probably lead with the second part of the definition of creativity, which is I'm going to show you how I can still meet these criteria, still meet our goals, still meet our objectives, still work within the constraints that we're facing, but in a new and different way. And in fact, in doing this, it might actually be a better way of doing this. I'll give you one quick example that I often use. It's based on you know footage from like this second grade classroom where this problem was 26 minus 17. So the answer is nine. And the teacher just asked the kids to kind of share their own way of how they came up with the answer of nine. And one kid basically said something along the lines of, okay, I have 26 minus 17. I just take the six and seven and set them aside for a second. And then I subtract the 10 from the 20. And that gives me 10. And then I subtract the seven from that 10. That gives me three. I add it back to six and that's nine. Now, that is certainly a different way of understanding that problem, but it's mathematically accurate, right? It's new and meaningful. And the most beautiful thing about that is when that kid's explaining it, there's another little voice in the back of the classroom that says, I disagree with myself now. That was a beautiful thing. Imagine that, saying that both publicly, but also showing that this kid's explanation actually helped another kid who thought the answer was 11, but the incorrect answer, now understand mathematically how it was nine. Um, So I think that little second grade example is very illustrative to how we as adults, if we allow these little openings, rather than just kind of dismiss a kid's idea where a kid might say, add three back to six and get nine, we might be like, no, you need to think about that some more, where actually this kid did think about it and had a very unusual but mathematically accurate way of solving it that actually contributed to the learning of another kid. So those kinds of little examples, I think we can all learn from, and I think we can start seeing them in our own lives, in our own interactions on a daily basis. And so providing space to at least hear these different perspectives, while still, again, making sure that they are meaningfully, you know, solving the problems we want to solve, attain the goals we want to attain, and so on. So let's review. If you're feeling that creative uncertainty creeping in, it could be based on how you're looking at the concept of creativity in the first place. I mean, who wouldn't feel intimidated thinking that your ideas can go anywhere and everywhere? But that's just the thing. Creativity isn't unconstrained originality. Creativity should be in the context of what you're working on. But to that end, have you been given the proper parameters to succeed? Unpacking creative uncertainty is also about figuring out good uncertainty versus bad uncertainty. Good meaning you're operating within clear goals, and bad meaning that hesitation you feel stems from the fact that you're working with a moving target. And after all that hemming and hawing, your idea still fails? Yeah, it's a crappy feeling. It's a really, really crappy feeling. But you can strip away that negativity around failure and put it in the context of your favorite failure by writing out how you felt in the moment and why your idea didn't go as you planned. We're only human, right? We're wired to be risk-averse in so many situations. But when it comes to creativity, there is a rule book that you can apply that can give you that boost of confidence to be your best creative self. More of our throwback episode of Creative Control after the break. 
This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. I don't need to tell you how stressful the creative process can be, but what I can tell you is how to manage those negative emotions to get you back on track. I started thinking about this topic when I had Seth Green on the podcast a few episodes ago, and he mentioned how governing his temperament was his biggest creative challenge. So I hit up Michael Park, who's an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School. In our conversation, Michael gives key strategies for how we can all better recognize and handle stress to become better creatives and leaders. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here and thanks for inviting me. No, of course. And so, you know, before we dive into it, I just want to get a sense of what you do at the Wharton Business School because your resume is quite impeccable. And you know, I reached <laughs> out to you for a reason about this topic. So just to kick things off, I'd love it if you can just give me a rundown of, of what you do at Wharton. Generally speaking, I research and teach on leadership and teams. And I try to help organizations identify those factors that empower employees to be more creative and proactive in their jobs. Um, so going beyond the bare minimum to kind of contribute value to the workplace. And that's kind of hard to create environments where everyone wants to do that consistently. And more specifically, kind of why I think we're talking today is I often look at the emotional effects in the workplace and how that impacts things from like creativity to group dynamics to managing conflict and these emotions are often the undercurrent that sort of can drive motivation make people uh get upset or and actually drive innovation oh yes we are indeed going to explore these things <laughs> because i brought you onto the podcast because not too long ago i had the actor and producer seth green on the show and of course you know we know him from his many roles in film austin powers you know can't hardly wait just so many films and also you know show robot chicken and i asked him what his greatest creative challenge was and this is what he said frankly it's governing my own temperament hmm. like realistically you get so many things hurled at you that are out of your control hmm. and remaining zen about the job that has to get done <laughs> right. and the unemotional reality of facts. When I can stay in that place, everything works great, whatever it is. Whenever I am triggered or emotionally engaged in a way that is distracting, that's the biggest challenge. So Seth's challenge seemed right up your alley, again, which is why I reached out to you. So yeah, definitely. where do we even start like, where do we start to unpack all of this? Definitely. And it's a great question. It's a great topic. And I think you highlight the correct word, which is unpack, because I think there's two levels to, to separate right off the get-go, which is um, kind of managing your own emotions in the creative process. Like something I'll talk about is like emotional regulation, emotional intelligence. That's really about your own. And it, I think that his quote is really speaking to that. But we often do creative work with others, right? And there's this whole group dynamic about emotion, managing the emotions of the team. And especially if you're a leader of that team or you know one of the, the main influencers of that team. And so 
you know, we can talk about both those separately. And I thought because his um, quote speaks directly to kind of managing your own emotions through that creative process, maybe that would be a good place to start if that sounds good to you. Yes, please take it away. You're the expert. So, (laughs) you know, there's been a lot of work on something called emotion regulation, which is about how do you kind of change your emotions so that they're more productive for your tasks at hand. And a lot of times that's more of this like positive energy that, you know, that Seth's talking about or the Zen state. Mm. Um, You might've heard of this called as flow, right? And that's kind of this enthusiasm you get where you meet the optimality between challenge and your confidence to kind of master that challenge. And so you're absorbed because it's challenging, but you also feel really engaged because you're rising to the occasion and just kind of flowing. And so we try to put ourselves in those states, but we know creativity is really difficult. It's uncertain. There's doubt, there's confusion, there's market feedback that's telling us our ideas aren't great, you know, and we need to go through all those ups and downs and those negative emotions. And so how do we stay sane? How do we keep our temperament, especially when things aren't going well? So I think there's two main strategies that we find in the research, which are, again, connected to this ability to regulate your emotions. And one, the most common is sort of like in the moment or when you're experiencing those those negative feelings or that frustration, anger, confusion, doubt. And that is cognitive reappraisal or what we also refer to as reframing, Mm -hmm. right? So the classic reframe is like taking something that you're overwhelmed by or anxious about and then saying, oh, this is an opportunity to grow. This is an opportunity to challenge. I know. And that works much better when you do that to yourself than when someone else does that for you, right? <laughs> That's a good point. That's actually a really good point because even even because it sounds so hokey and a little cheesy, but if you're telling it to yourself, I think that does make it a little less yeah, less cheesy, less corny, (laughs) or like usually it's like your boss and saying, hey, I want you to do all this work and just think of it as an opportunity to grow, which is like you kind of roll your eyes and like, sure, thank you for that. But when you're telling yourself that, it does tend to be pretty effective. And so um, I have some other examples of this reappraisal that can be helpful. So for anything that's frustrating, difficult, or stressful, there's a few things you can try to do to reframe it. So one, is recognize it. So the first and foremost thing that there's been work on um, what's called affect labeling or emotional labeling. And literally just by taking a second to recognize, hey, I'm, I'm kind of anxious right now, or I'm, I'm stressed right now, can actually reduce the impact that that emotion has on you and kind of allow you to regroup and refocus. Um, and again, you know, Seth was talking about centering, like breathing, that can do it as well. But also, having that dialogue in your head or even saying it out loud can be the first step. The second is um, to validate it. So a lot of times what we try to do when we're feeling negative or stressed is we try to fight it. And we say things like, don't worry. Hmm. And I've done this before. Why am I getting upset again? I've done a thousand podcasts. Why am I nervous? Stop again? yelling at me, Michael. Re- Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That? Yeah. So I figured you could relate to some of those, oh. those internal dialogue. <laughs> and really what you're doing is creating what's called a secondary emotion. And that judgment actually 
fuels the flame to make that negative emotion more pronounced. And those aren't actually really useful. It actually can make it worse. Mm. And so a more successful approach is to validate, is to make sense why you're anxious. Well, I, and usually it comes down to because you really care. So if you're upset, angered, or anxious, it's because you really care. And that caring as that source of that negative emotion is useful and it makes sense because you value it and it's showing you something that really matters to you. And so I think if you stop and try to recognize that, then that also can kind of help deal with the emotion um, more effectively than judging yourself. Hmm. And then the third is the actual reframing. So, you know, it's kind of a three-step process where reframing is recognize it, validate it, and then reframe it. And these common reframes are the learning mindset. So finding, hey, this is an opportunity to grow. So instead of focus on worrying about whether you're going to be successful in the outcome, you know, whether you're going to win, focus on, hey, this is another opportunity for me to like really practice, try to prove my craft, to challenge myself. That can be useful. Find the humor in the situation. Another one is to envision past successes. Hmm. Like, look, I've been in a similar situation in the past. And let me just call that to my mental state, my mental reframe, be like, oh yeah, I did pretty well last time when I had to do something similar, right? And then the final is like process focus. So maybe it's very overwhelming, like, oh, we need to create a new episode or I need to create a new show or podcast. Well, why don't you focus, break that down into much more simple tasks and reframe it that way. It's like, okay, I just need to do this one thing now. Mm -hmm. um, and so those, those are kind of the common reframes that help us deal with sort of stressful, frustrating, or difficult things. Um, and so do those resonate? You know, should I, do I need to clarify any of those or add to it? Feel free to, to let me know how that sounds. Oh, no, those are great. No, those are wonderful, actually. So yeah. So you recognize it, validate it, and then reframe it. Got it. Absolutely. Nice. Um, and so that's kind of the reframe, but that's more for like the activated negative emotion. So like when you're stressed or mm -hmm. upset or frustrated, but for like, when you just don't feel like engaging in your craft, you know, like, oh, I don't feel like I have the energy today. I'm feeling pretty tired. This just seems like a grind. Right. There's a couple different twists for that problem. And one of the most um, effective reframes is to connect that tedious task or that something that you don't want to do and find the higher level value or goal it connects to, hmm. right? So maybe there's something like, for me, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe these reviewers or these um, editors are asking me to rewrite this another time. And it seems tedious. So then the higher level is like, you know what? I really believe in this research. I really want it to make uh, the most sense for people who are reading it. And so I find that kind of higher order value that really can kind of get you motivation. And so that's that's something when you're just not feeling like you want to engage in, in your creative work. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good one because I feel like that that actually speaks to something another guest was talking about, uh, Ellen Pompeo, and she was her biggest creative challenge was how do I inject life? How would I inject something new and something that I've been doing for 18 seasons? I mean, she's been on Grey's Anatomy for so long that she feels like there's a part of me that just gets yeah. exhausted by it. Like I'm tired of it. So how do I make it feel new? How do I, how do I, how do I connect with it again when it's something that is basically like another arm at this exactly. point, like you just get so used to it. So yeah, that's actually, that's a really good, that's a really good point. Yeah. And I think in everyone's job, you're going to be doing work that is routine or tedious and 
maybe not be your most fun. Every single job has that. And so reminding yourself like why that's valuable. And it's usually because that work is needed to accomplish something that you care about much more, Mm. right? Which is like serving a customer or helping your teammate out or, you know, making progress on your own personal goals. When we're stuck in the weeds, sometimes we need to stop and remind ourselves of that higher order goal that that is related to. The second kind of really useful uh, strategy for managing your own emotions in any work, especially creative work, is focusing on your recovery. <laughs> and I like to I like to use a term called emotional fitness. And I have this analogy where I talk about fitness. And if I ask people, and I'll ask you, Casey, so what do you think about when you think of really fit athletes? Like what comes to mind? What kind of characteristics? What kind of elements or someone who's like really fit? I'm curious just what comes to mind if you can kind of tell me that. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, dedication, like routine. Like the fact that they got so fit is because they put in the hours to, they train essentially. And it's something you have to, you know, be on a schedule if you're that if you're that fit, then that means you have some sort of regimen that you're sticking to both, you know, exercise and diet. There's something that you're sticking to. So yeah, that's what I think of. Absolutely. And you're even getting into some of the more specific strategies. So well done. I think when I, when I ask that, usually what people often say are things like power, strength, endurance, <laughs> like how, how far you can go when we talk about fitness, right? How much you can push right. without taking a break and so forth. Well, There's another aspect of fitness that we often overlook and that's recovery. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I used to be an athlete, but I'm very unfit now. And the way I present this and when I'm teaching is like, especially like 18 to 20 year olds who are like really in great, you know, shape and have, have all the youth at their disposal. But I say, look, youth doesn't always equate to fitness, you know, not not disparaging your students. I'm sure they are very fit, but you know, (laughs) that's true. What I usually say though, is this story is like, look, if we went out to a track and had a hundred meter race, I'm pretty sure I could keep up with most of you and even maybe win, but you all could probably do another one within 30 seconds. And I would be in a stretcher, you know, not being able to to run again for another day or two because I am so unfit. And that's where recovery is like, how quickly can we bounce back when we hit a setback, when something's upsetting us? Do we spend hours ruminating on it? Do we not sleep well that night, which affects our productivity the next day? Do we, you know, have the routines that you were talking about, the diet, the sleep that allows us to focus on our recovery? And, you know, something that books like The Power of Full Engagement, and um, researchers have looked at too is like, do we schedule recovery time in our day, mm. right? Because the way we tend to to do, and, and even Seth talked about that, is you fill up your schedule so much where you have no time to recover, and that actually affects your engagement in the task. And so these can be something as simple as like making sure you have breaks in your day. Mm-hmm. You know, something that I've been trying to do for myself for for years now, but I still have not been able to, is actually schedule things that I know really fill me up, such as like playing music or, or talking to a friend I haven't talked to about during the day and not just saving those like, oh, I'll get to them eventually in the weekend, but actually being really strategic about how you manage your recovery and your energy um, is so critical to, to the process. And one other quick tip, um, which I've heard, you know, some of my students say is like, 
never do hour meetings, always do 45 minutes. So then you always schedule that 15 minutes of like break time before your next activity or task in the day. Hmm. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and so recovery time really should just be anything that restores you. It should, it's kind of, it sounds like it's a really personal thing. So I guess like, yeah, so it's really personal. I mean, obviously the classic ones are the things you talked about. So like sleep, I think sleep is so important and there's been so much literature and research and kind of a new kind of like the sleep generation of if you really need to get sleep. So exercise is key, you know, any of those contemplative practices, whether it's yoga, meditation to give your mind a break, journaling, any of those focused activities breaks. So those are the classic, but everyone's different, right? And everyone, you know, you may prefer, I think Seth and you talked about liking to just sit quietly outside or something, right? Where others might want to go for a walk or listen to a podcast. I think the key is like doing, being very intentional about it and planning it into your days. Whereas a lot of times people make the mistake of only planning tasks, only planning when they're giving to their work or others and not planning receiving activities such as taking care of yourself. And so that that's something that really helps with managing emotions mm-hmm. because what that does is that increases your overall capacity to be resilient, to reframe, to you know recover after a setback. Because when you're depleted, when your energy is low, when you don't have recovery, it makes all those other strategies we just talked about really challenging to pull off. And one thing I think is really important to talk about is how these lessons and advice, how this applies to leaders in a company. Because I think yeah. it's one thing to you know recognize your emotions and and go through all the processes that we've been talking about. But I feel like for the longest time, the conventional wisdom has been not to share your feelings in the workplace, not to say like I'm overwhelmed or I'm anxious or anything like that. And so you know, for leaders, like how what goes into creating an environment where people can share their feelings and yeah like what goes into that i've just literally published on that on that topic which is teams that have more emotional open environments and more authentic environments where people feel comfortable to express their feelings and you know deal with them are more creative and what we found is that they elaborate ideas and discussions more and don't let those sort of negative feelings bottle up and, and lead to disengagement within the team. And so it's a really key question. Some of the advice I give is have the courage to deal with emotions of your team members, because in the past, you're right. It was sort of emotions were seen as irrational and like, let's keep these out of the work because they're going to um, hurt the work. But the, the problem is one, that's impossible to do. <laughs> like yeah. you can't just turn <laughs> off people and make them robots. And two, if you try to manage your emotions that way, that is when emotions lead to dysfunctional effects. Mm -hmm. However, if you consider them as another data point, as another feedback point, right? And especially in creative work where we're struggling and trying to deal with novelty. And so we all have these intuitive reactions to, I like that. Yes. And they've done research on this where they found that like, They've studied feedback and a lot of the feedback in creative work is like emotional laden. It's intuitive. It's like, oh, that really resonates or that, that excites me. Or I I don't get that. That confuses me. Right. That's not going to work. And people have a hard time articulating it in like cognitive understanding because it's that novelty that we're dealing with. 
And so what our prediction was and what we found is that environments that allow that type of communication to come out and also problems are often tied to like negative feelings, right? I'm frustrated because we still have this problem and we're not fixing. Well, that can lead to creativity if we allow that person to share it and then try to resolve that emotion, try to resolve that problem. And so kind of our, our analogy was like, let's use emotions as information and not be afraid to deal with them. And I think, you know, strategies to doing that is inviting feedback, inviting input, not cutting people off, certainly not judging people for their emotions, but being curious about maybe why people are, are feeling that way. Things like, hey, can you elaborate your feeling here or your thoughts here? Can you share more? It seems like, you know, this might be kind of a problem that's been upsetting you. And, and you know, those types of those asks and those uh, sort of nudges can really go a long way to getting good dialogue in teams. Oh, wow. Okay. So to recap, really just a matter of, you know, first of all, like not like recognizing your emotions, like stopping and when you're feeling something, just even saying like, okay, wait, I feel this way. Cause I think I'll speak for myself. One thing that I'm kind of guilty of is like, I'll, I'll feel something and I'll know it, but I just don't stop to really sit with it. I just kind of chalk it up as like, all right, yeah. I'm feeling anxious right now, but that, that's because I have a lot of to do and I don't really stop and really sit with it for a moment. And I think when you sit with it, then you can then begins the process of like, like you said, like, you know, recognizing it, validating it and then reframing yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> and that, yeah. Oh, and then having that emotional fitness, like baking in that recovery time, which I think is such another really good point because I am not good at that. <laughs> we all are <laughs> at all. Not good at, that. <laughs> at all. Oh, man. Okay. So, I mean, is there any other tips and advice that you can give us for, you know, kind of channeling, channeling are the, the inevitable emotions that we feel when we're, when we're creating, when we're working and turning it into a positive, like letting it, letting it fuel our creativity as opposed to holding us back. Yeah. I mean, I think if there's maybe one or two themes from kind of the, the discussion we said today, which is like, I think a lot of times, both from what we we grow up culturally, and it, I think it is changing a bit, but what we grow up culturally, what we see is people really kind of try to like fight through emotions and put them aside. And I think the analogy works with your own work too. Like if you're anxious and you just try to work through that, like the emotion is still going to be there. So maybe using that to kind of inform your work. Why am I anxious? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm forgetting something, or maybe there's another way to go about this, or maybe I'm worried how they will react, or maybe I can rethink about this a different way. And so just using it there. And then the same thing with the teams and the leaders, right? So it might be uncomfortable to have someone who, who kind of gets upset in the team. And then we, we, you know, you've been in those meetings where maybe everyone just doesn't say anything. It's quiet. And then someone just sort of avoids it and moves on. But like, what if, instead of that, which could have lingering effects, maybe just try to deal with it. Maybe try to say, oh, let's try to bring some attention to this and maybe we can resolve it or maybe we can meet offline and talk about it. And I think having that courage is kind of a key point there. And then just the last thing with leaders, something we're seeing in creating these openness environments and these safe environments has a lot to do with leaders being vulnerable mm. at times. And again, it's not something where you probably want to say every day, like, you know, I'm really struggling today. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, there's uh, limits. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's certainly limits, but at key moments and occasionally sharing 
a time where maybe you failed sharing that. Yeah. You have tough days too. And you make, it makes you more relatable. And I think leaders sometimes have this impression that they have to always be positive and they always have to sort of be resilient. But the downside is that then that kind of conveys to your team that that's what they have to be. And we know no one is like that. No one's perfect. Right. So mm-hmm. I think there's these key moments where leaders can take have the courage to have a little bit more vulnerability. And that should go a long way to opening up teams more to be more willing to share and not rum. You are definitely the right person to call for this episode, Michael. <laughs> thank you so much. This was wonderful. That's going to do it for this throwback episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you're in the loop when our new season drops in the fall. See you then.